This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. T.K. Coleman, good to have you back. It's good to be back, my brother. Did you listen to my brother trying to fill in for you last week? Dude, it was a respectable effort, man. Levi's my man. I'm kind of disappointed that you listened because he revealed in that episode that he listens to the podcast, but not the Friday episodes. Right, right, right. Oh, oh, I already already know you and TK. There's nothing to hear there. Couldn't believe it. Dude, but you know, it's kind of like when when you put me in as an usher at your wedding. And I, I made you my best man. You know what I mean? It, it, it's sort of like, hey, you don't you don't have to think highly of me in order for me to still recognize your greatness, man. Dude, <laughs> you always elevate yourself too much. You weren't even an usher. That's right. That's we right. ran out of usher spots, and so I made you the MC of the reception, and that gave you mad exposure. If you were just ushering or standing up there at the front. People just be like, he's got a nice smile, but you emceed the hell out of that reception. And that turned you in. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I changed your life with that. You got all these requests and then you're like, I'm going to be a public speaker. Like you used to be all shy and used to cry when people looked at you. <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, man. It turned out okay. It turned out okay. <laughs> so, dude, so uh, I'm ping ponging this morning, man. Uh, by the way, thanks for letting us do it earlier than we normally do. It is morning even for me, barely. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I was on a big high because I love doing acceptance calls where I get to call Praxis applicants and personally say, congratulations, you've been accepted in the program. So I had four acceptance calls this morning. Awesome. Right after yeah. I got done with those, I get an alert from Alaska Airlines. I'm taking my son out to Seattle for this video game conference. And we're supposed to leave this afternoon and then get there late tonight. And then we've got all day tomorrow in downtown Seattle and then all day Sunday at the conference. And then we fly back Monday. Well, there's this like, I don't know, it's supposed to be a hurricane, tropical storm. It was about a half hour of thunder and lightning and that's it this morning. And then it cleared, but I guess it's, you know, all kinds of, you know how the airline industry is. So they're like, your flight's been canceled. It's rescheduled for tomorrow evening. So we still should get there late tomorrow evening and then get up early the next morning, go to the convention and then come home the very next morning. We should still be able to make the whole day of the the one day of the convention that we have our badges for. But I was so excited to spend all day Saturday downtown Seattle, taking an L down to Pike's place and, you know, seeing the Space Needle going down. I mean, there's just a lot of it's a really cool place. It's the kind of place I think he'll love. And I was really excited for that. But uh Mother Nature w- had other plans. Oh, man. It, it, it's crazy, man. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like the uh, the weather conditions were all that dramatic enough to cancel, but... Well, I don't know. know. You know how they get, like, backed up system-wide or whatever? Or or it's just a conspiracy and they all hate me. <laughs> let's, uh, let's latch on to that disempowering belief and just hunker down <laughs> and the end times. It sounds like a fun narrative, man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so... I don't, I didn't bring a lot to the table today, man. I'm kind of, um, I'm a, I'm an open book TK. Uh, man, well, you know, we, we always have, have something going on. There, there are always things, uh, that, that are churning upstairs. You know, one thing that's fresh on my mind is we had a really great philosophy night, uh, at our practice group hangout last night. So 
for those who don't know, we have weekly hangouts um, with the Praxis participants and alumni, and we have a different theme that we cover each week. So the first week of every month, we do a philosophy night where we pick certain topics and we just debate and discuss them. Sometimes we have guest philosophers come on and make a case for something, and we just try to play the angels advocate, devil's advocate, and tear their arguments down, see what's wrong with them. Uh, or sometimes we just spend the time doing uh, thought experiments and things of that sort. Uh, the second week, we, we do skills workshops where, you know, we had Connor Jeffers from Dose Media come show us about Salesforce and why it's so valuable and how to use it. We're going to have Derek McGill do uh, MailChimp, you know, and coming up in the, one of the upcoming weeks. So we just focus on developing or mastering some some skill or tool. Then the third week we do, um, we have a guest entrepreneur, someone that just comes in and tells us their story, uh, takes Q&A and, and just kind of gives us a, another example of how you can create the life that you want. And then for the fourth week, we, we just kind of hang out and talk about our side projects, our business partner experiences and so forth. So we had philosophy like night last night and we actually discussed the objectivity, subjectivity of beauty debate. debate. Um, basically the question, is it possible for aesthetic uh, um, attributes to be objective? Typically we just sort of assume that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And then the reason we do this is because people disagree about it, right? You know, one person says, wow, the Mona Lisa is beautiful. And another person says, ah, I don't really see it. One person goes to a modern art museum and looks at everything and says, absolutely exquisite. And another person says, I'm not impressed. So clearly, these judgments range from person to person, and uh, they must be just a, a matter of subjectivity. But uh, when philosophers were surveyed, over 30% of them actually claimed to believe that there is, there is some meaningful sense in which beauty exists independently of our preferences and tastes. And so um, there are some pretty interesting arguments for that. And we kind of debated and discussed those last night. What's your take on this topic, man? Do you think beauty is objective or subjective? Well, like so many things in philosophy, the definitions are going to be crucial. <laughs> so, um, you know, is there an objective scale of aesthetic beauty? I guess it depends on what you mean by beauty. If you mean it will objectively make, you know, one thing will objectively make people more delighted or happy to look at it than another thing, um, then I don't think you can argue that if for no other reason than that we do not have access to what's really in other people's minds. So in other words, even if it is true that you could have a objectively ugly picture and an objectively beautiful picture, and and even if it's true that beauty makes everyone happier in some sense uh, than ugliness. You could never prove that because someone could always say, no, I feel happier looking at the ugly one. And there's no way to know if they're lying, right? So so there's there's no way to know in terms of if beauty is the feeling someone gets, if, if we're assuming that beauty is sort of good or preferable to ugliness, then we can't say it's objective. But we don't have to go that far. So... I do think there are objective criteria that apply to uh, aesthetics and whether or not, so things may be more or less beautiful 
But that doesn't necessarily mean everyone's going to like that. Maybe some people like things that are ugly, or if we want to use less loaded terms, Christopher Alexander was really influential with me on this. And then we've talked about his, his books on architecture and the nature of space and, and the way that humans relate to their environments. And I would have been far more subjectivist in terms of like, look, it's just all whatever. Like a window is you either like it or you don't like it. Totally up to the person. And while I still think it's totally up to the person whether you like or don't like a window, there are reasons that we are not normally conscious of that most people tend to like or not even consciously like, but be drawn to or find themselves in a room with certain types of windows more than others. And he breaks down what's going on there that we don't always aren't always aware of. And, and his way of looking at it in the realm of sort of architecture and built environments and even in nature sometimes is how how alive they are, how much life they are. And he has this whole set of sort of criteria that he lays out and it leaves some room for some like fudgy nuance a little bit, but it's a pretty clear and it's got like a lot of logic to it that's really hard to disagree with. So certain uh, you know ways of even arranging a living room can be more or less alive based on realities of human nature. And this is where it's almost similar to, to economics in a way, based on humans are biologically, psychologically, we're phototropic, we're drawn towards light. And especially when we're in certain acts like deep contemplation and our eyes sort of stare into the distance, we sort of move towards light sources and look towards those directions. I mean, I find when I'm on the phone, I always all of a sudden realize I've wandered towards the window and opened the blinds and I'm like looking out the window while I talk. So anyway, that's sort of a reality of how humans are. Therefore, given that pattern, if you arrange a room so that the only place is to sit comfortably, because humans also need to sit, they can't stand for hours on end, face away from light, then you have this inner tension. Do I sit and be comfortable, and which is the only way to have extended conversations, or do I stand and be facing the light um, you know, which is I'm drawn to naturally, but I can't do it for very long. So you have a room that's full of contradictions and tensions where conversations can't be very long and therefore not very deep because you, you're, you have to choose between, you know, facing light or sitting. And, and these are not all necessarily consciously going on, but this whole framework really impressed upon me that even in the realm of things that we would consider just sort of aesthetics, um, oh, that's all just subjective. There are objective truths about form and the way humans relate to form that I think can absolutely be understood at least on some level. Now, again, that doesn't mean someone couldn't walk in and say, I actually hate looking at light. I prefer darkness and I'm happier there. I actually prefer long conversations while I'm standing. I'm not gonna say they're lying. I'm not gonna say there's nobody who's an outlier, but I don't think that negates the fact that there are these general principles that can make uh, a pattern of uh, of a room more or less alive, or can make uh, you know a painting more or less beautiful. Does that does that jive? Oh yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. In fact, we actually see examples of this with other attributes or qualities or realities that we take to be objective. So when it comes to truth, for instance, we we all believe that <clears throat> at least in a certain sense, facts are objective, right? That I can't. I can't magically or instantaneously alter my net worth merely by being dissatisfied by what it is, right? Like I, I cannot, the, the fact that 
some reality is inconsistent oh, with you, my preferences. You didn't, you didn't watch The Secret then, huh? <laughs> I, I, I knew you were going to say something like that. <laughs> when I was halfway through with that sentence, I was like, man, I picked the wrong example. <laughs> but, you, you know, my being dissatisfied with the reality doesn't make it just disappear and go away. There are things that exist independently of my personal preferences. And yet we're all familiar with the experience of trying to explain something that we regard as true to another person who just doesn't get it. They just don't see the truth. Now, it may be possible that in some of those cases, we're overestimating you know, how good we're, how good of a job we're doing at presenting the information. Maybe we're making the assumption that we're right when we're really wrong. But I, I think we'd all agree that there are certainly instances where something is generally regarded as factual. And yet, for whatever reason, there are people in that environment who don't see it. They don't get it. They, they don't have the ability to process it. They don't want to see it. Or even if they do see it, they just aren't impressed by it. And so there seems to be no end to our human ability to be unimpressed. And so we can't determine the objectivity or subjectivity of things based entirely on people being impressed. Now, I think you made a really good point when you talked about how there are certain objective qualities that seem to impact us in different ways, because this mirrors one of the arguments that people will make when they argue that beauty is objective. So for instance, one point of view is to say that beauty isn't so much what you prefer, that's taste. But beauty is rather an attribute that exists in an object or in a person that has the power to induce a response of awe, admiration, inspiration, and so forth. And th there seems to be a body of evidence that indicates that there are certain properties, like for instance, we could say symmetry, that induce a certain kind of response in us, that, that objects that, that have a, a certain kind of shape or a certain kind of symmetry seem to strike us as attractive. They seem to draw us in and make us respect them more. Now, you raise a really good point that since there are people who can always be impressed, how do we know? Um, so one argument would be, well, you can, you can take a look at history. Some objects, some works of art, some things tend to stand the test of time, and they tend to have a pretty predictable effect on people's responses. And when that predictable effect isn't had, it seems to be predictably the case that there's some sort of special situation. So, for instance, sunsets. Sunsets seem to be objectively beautiful, meaning that over the course of history, they have a, a pretty predictable response of awe in people in general. And, and in cases where people look at a sunset and say, I'm not impressed, when we probe, we find information like, oh, this person had to fight in a war and they associate sunsets with death. So th there seems to be some special thing present that actually hinders this person's ability to appreciate what they would naturally regard as beauty if that element were absent. Does that yeah. make sense? Oh, absolutely. That You actually touched on something that um, I think exceptions are dramatically overrated as drop-dead arguments to disprove a rule or a norm. So when you have a rule... And someone says, here's an exception. It's rarely the case that the exception disproves the rule. I, I mean, it can, but it's often, I find it's probably more often the case that the exception actually proves the rule. So take, um, you know, whatever it might be, uh, you could go with morality or, or we could go with beauty. If someone says, 
you know, um, you look at you look at a or listen to a horribly dissonant like or uh, what, what's the word? A discordant piece of music that's just like oh, like painful to the ear. And if you try to say, look, everyone could would tell you this is not beautiful music. Well, there's somebody who's going to say, oh no, 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 but like there it is beautiful and they'll give you some sort of mathematical breakdown about how it challenges the ear and and if you ask them to explain long enough you it's really common that you'll find the argument they're making for its beauty for it being an exception to this rule that oh this is everyone knows this doesn't meet the criteria it's not beautiful is tied to the fact that it doesn't meet the criteria. It's tied to the fact that it isn't beautiful. It's almost like, no, 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 this is good precisely because it hurts the ear and that challenges you to go further and think in new ways. Like so many of the exceptions, I'm not, I don't think I'm communicating this really well. So many of the exceptions are exceptions precisely because the rule exists. Like they, they're only there as a, they almost reinforce the existence of the rule in the first place. So like, you know, the reason people are whatever, uh, rebellious or wear Gothic clothes or whatever, um, the existence of those people doesn't prove that there is no dominant fashion style. It actually proves that there is a dominant fashion style because that entire aesthetic is adopted as a response to that norm. Do you see what I'm saying? So many exceptions are actually responses to the norm that I think reinforce it more than um, more than the opposite. C.S. Lewis talked about this with morality, where he's like, you know, there is some kind of universal morality. Everybody basically always has believed that murder and lying and stealing and cheating are bad things. And someone will always have an exception and say, oh, what about this? What about this? But notice the exceptions always have to have special context. They always have to have yeah, but, you know, uh, cheating isn't always bad because what if you had to, or lying, you had to lie to someone who was going to kill you if you weren't, you know, kill your family if you didn't lie. They always require a justification. Whereas someone saying, I told the truth, no one in all of history has been like, I need you to justify telling the truth. Why did you not lie in that situation? Do you see what I'm saying? So those exceptions often prove the, the ubiquity of the rule. All right. So I love this point so much. I got to shift gears a little bit because I wrote a blog post for Praxis a long time ago called Some Guy Theory, where I talk about this very idea, how, you know, there is always some guy for whom it doesn't work and it doesn't matter what the subject is. You know, so whether you're talking about losing weight, eating healthier, managing money, building a business, having a successful marriage, learning to meditate. There's always a story about some guy who just couldn't get the system, the diet, the idea or whatever it is to work for him. And we often make way too much out of these out of these uh, exceptions. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. I think you wrote a Facebook status a couple of weeks ago kind of joking about this where, where you said um, – Hi, I'm writing this comment just to let you know that this insight doesn't apply to every human being who has ever lived in every situation, regardless <laughs> of conditions. You know, um, th there are people that will reject entire bodies of knowledge or like really valuable insights for no other reason than that they have an uncle who has a son, who has a friend that he went to school with, who has a cousin, who has an aunt, who has a guy that he worked for who tried that. 
and it didn't work. You know, some guy theory. If I can find an exception, then everything that you just said is completely meaningless and I don't need to be challenged by the argument or the insight. It's amazing how many people hold themselves back from the opportunity to create positive changes in their lives for no other reason than they know some guy who tried that for whom it didn't work. Which is an odd orientation to have, by the way, if you really think about it. If you want to be exceptional or high achieving or happy or whatever, and you're looking for ideas, advice, concepts, practices, mindsets you can use to help you, if you if you criticize any of those ideas that don't apply to absolutely everyone all the time, that aren't universally applicable, then basically what you're saying is I'm trying to be exceptional by looking at all the truths that apply universally to totally like unexceptional people. If, if you want to be better than average, why would you look for the advice that applies to the average or even broader that applies to the least common denominator? I want to find the thing that is relevant to everyone's life. Why? I would rather go the opposite direction. I would rather deliberately seek out advice that has the narrowest application possible. And I am literally the like one of two people in the world for whom it's a good idea. That's where I'd rather go. I, I would rather, there's this great phrase, uh, Dan Sullivan, I, I heard him on a podcast recently say, you know, I'm always trying to simplify my life. And I always ask myself, who do I want to be a hero for? Because there's a lot of great things I could do. Someone asked me to come speak or write an article on this or whatever. And I say, that's a great thing to do. I could be a hero for that group or for that topic, but I don't want to be a hero for them. I have a really narrow range of things of people that I want to be a hero for or of causes I believe in or things I'm trying to accomplish. So I want to go the other way. I want to find pieces of advice that would be stupid or completely inapplicable for the vast majority of people because those are the ones that are going to help me become me and set me apart from the faceless mass and become an individual who's got a tighter, more unique set of goals and experiences. I wouldn't see that as a criticism to say this doesn't apply to everyone. I would be like, good. That means it's more valuable. When you try to make a product for the whole world, it's probably not going to be as highly specific to you and as uniquely tailored and as valuable than if you've got one for a niche audience. You know, this is why I like the notion of entrepreneurship as philosophy in action. You know, um, where entrepreneur, you know, I heard Brian Brinberg. It's the difference between thought experiments and field experiments. That's you know? it. That's it. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. I heard Brian Brinberg call uh, entrepreneurship the process of testing hypotheses, right, about the marketplace. And I think that's a really powerful idea because what happens is people get caught up in this sort of permission seeking mindset that says, I got to have a knockdown argument that I can adequately address every conceivable counterexample before I act on this idea or before I experiment with this notion. But entrepreneurship, it's kind of a different sort of mentality. That doesn't mean you just dive right in and invest your life savings on every creative impulse that you have. But the entrepreneurial mentality is to say, all right, there's only so much I can figure out through conceptual analysis and contemplation. And furthermore, I don't even know what I'm dealing with until I get some kind of feedback from the marketplace. So instead of debating this idea endlessly and asking myself, will it work for me? I'm going to identify what my level of comfort is with risk. And then within that, within that area, I'm going to conduct some experiments to see if this works for me. So whether it's 
uh, losing weight, making effective uh, and enduring changes in my diet, seeing if I can improve my income. Let's see what works for me. Let's conduct some experiments. Let's test out some hypotheses and let's see what happens and just kind of develop an appreciation for it. How, how differently everyone reacts and responds to changes that they try to make in their lives. I mean, the limitations of theory, and I, I love theory, by the way. One of my favorite phrases is this Latin phrase. Uh, uh, no, forget it. I'm trying to remember. Agere sequitur credere. Action follows belief. I think everything starts as an idea. I think getting your ideas right, your theory right. I am not, we've talked about this before one of these people that's like, data can tell us everything. You need a lens through which to interpret it, whatever. So don't misunderstand this as a criticism of theory, but the limits of theory in terms of answering questions about the world of human beings, interacting real human beings and what they value, what's, what's valuable to humans and what would be more valuable to humans. Those questions that are not just, you know, does two plus two equal four, not the a priori sort of logical foundations, but in the world of subjective humans, what would make them better off? What would they like more? Those questions, theories, limitations are directly what led to the creation of praxis, the company praxis, not the concept, uh, <laughs> but it works well. Um, and that was, I was obsessed with this notion of education, higher education specifically, but education more broadly. And like, what is going on here? Why are people paying tens of thousands, mostly bored for four or five years coming out? They can't find a job that the employers are complaining that they don't have the skills. This is so screwed up. Why does it keep happening? And so I found some really profound, and this was like, I mean, I remember you and I talking about the signaling theory of education, like 10 years before praxis, you know, Oh, I get it. It's a signal. That's what they're actually buying. They're buying a signal that tells employers that they're better than average. And to be able to say I'm better than average is so valuable to them and the, the credit is cheap and whatever that they're willing to buy that signal. Got it. So I started exploring these theories, but like, how true is that? Could you create a better signal? I bet you could. I had theories and other people disagree. No, it's the, it's the well-rounded experience and all these other things that are going on. There's all these debates about what's really happening in higher ed and oh, disruption in higher ed. It's, we need technology to deliver the lectures and more. And I was always like, no, it's not an information problem. We don't need more access to information. There's, it's a signal. We need a better signal. There's a way to short circuit that signal, but that was all a theory. So it was a lot of arguing and yelling. And I had this epiphany, like I'm an ideas guy, but I've been stuck in the realm of ideas trying to argue people and convince them into agreeing with me that the only real innovation that matters in high red in the States anyway, where, where access to information is not the, the problem is the ability to build a better signal. And you can right now with the resources currently out there, build a signal better, faster, cheaper, that will get you where you want so many times better, uh, than going through the college route. And I couldn't convince very many people of that, especially because most of my friends were professors. And I finally had this moment where all the stress was relieved. Now there's a different kind of stress in being an entrepreneur. You could fail, but I didn't care by the time. This is why I had the courage to, to build this thing. And you and I talked about when I first had the idea, like this is the first idea TK I've had that I'm willing to fail at. I've had other ideas that, Oh, if I knew it would work, I would launch it. But this one, I was like, if it works or doesn't work, Good. I need to launch it anyway because I need the answer. This was a philosophical quest. I have this theory about what's going on in education and about what could be done so many times better. And if I'm right, that means I am creating ridiculous amounts of value, which means that I should be able to earn a profit. And if I'm wrong, uh, 
it could either mean that I didn't execute well or that my theory was wrong, but one of those two. And I wanted to find that answer and philosophizing about it in theory was just a lot of arguing and posturing and trying to have the person with the highest credibility get on your side. So your side looks better. Who cares? I don't care if every philosopher out there thinks that my theory of education is wrong. If I've got customers paying for me, paying for it, it's right. And their money, what they do, what they reveal with their actions is of infinitely more value than what somebody has as an opinion, which is free. So I want to go out into the real world, the field experiment and test this theory, this philosophy of education. And if I'm right, it will be valuable. That was really the impetus behind it. You know, th this reminds me of some things. Uh, there are a lot of, a lot of really great points from this, but one of the things that we recently discussed was how there is a difference between how the marketplace defines good and how school defines good. And often the two are very inconsistent with each other because in school, in order to get a good grade on, let's say, a paper that you write, your audience is usually just one person. Maybe in a, in a rare scenario, there's an entire committee of maybe like five to ten people who will judge the paper to decide if it's good enough. And if you displease those people, well, you get a bad mark. That's completely unlike the marketplace. In the marketplace, you can actually have millions of respectable people with great credentials absolutely hate what you're putting out there. But if you can find 5,000 people that are willing to pay 20 bucks for it, then you're in the game. Hello, Stephanie Meyer. Hello, Twilight. You know, I mean, think of think, or hello, Shades of Grey. Think of how many people are just so angry at that book. Hello, and Lionel Richie. <laughs> That's so good. That's good on many levels. <laughs> That's good on many levels, man. Well played. But, you, you know, think of how many people are just absolutely irate at writers and musicians that are pumping out what they believe to be crap or stuff that they don't think is worthy to be called music or literature or philosophy or art. Um, you see this happen all the time with School of Life. People are super angry with what they do, so upset. And yet, clearly, there's a market for it. Clearly, people are hungry for this. They want this. They're willing to go to bat for this. And there's this disconnect with, because the academicians uh, have their noses in the air and are too busy dismissing everyone as stupid for liking what they like. Hey, sorry about that. I just uh, had to hit mute for a second because my daughter's banging on the door. It's, it's all good. She says she needs to tell me something, and apparently telling my wife is not sufficient. Um, so hey, so I, I brought up the school of life really quickly. Can, I, I always botch his name. Can can you say his name? It's um Oh, uh no, it's 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 like Alan or Elaine Day or something. I forget. Yeah, I, I always read Yeah, I, I always like, read it. I never did, but yeah, that's one of those like I've never heard people pronounce it, so Yeah. Um so anyway, like We apologize, guy, Elaine de Blanc. <laughs> it's the Baton, you know what I mean? Yeah, like just I, say it with I, authority. I, <laughs> You know, I, I know what everybody else call him, but I call him the button. But um, <laughs> so th this guy is a great example of, of someone that's taking philosophy to the masses. And, and he's actually using philosophy to help people cope with everyday problems that, for the most part, 
many Western analytic philosophers in the universities aren't very concerned with. They don't really write about it. They don't teach on it. They just focus on, you know, um, their sort of uh, academic debates and, and getting published in research journals and teaching the academic stuff. But this guy is actually bridging the gap between philosophy and self-help. He's using the tools of philosophy to address a lot of these problems like managing your emotions, dealing with anxiety, learning to find love, finding meaning and fulfillment in your work. And people are just constantly making cases about why this isn't real philosophy and why this, you know, this stuff shouldn't be done. And yet on he goes doing his thing, having his impact. He's losing the debate with the philosophers, but he's winning with the marketplace. You know, back to back to beauty to sort of put a nice bow on that one. Um, answer the question once for all. It's Barry. No one, once you guys hear this, you'll never have to wonder again. No, uh, quite the opposite. Uh, wonderfully with philosophy as it's constant exploration. But I think one way to think about this, this is how I really like to think about beauty. And I actually think of morality in this same way. What if it's objective, but it's also personal? So it's objective in that there really is something out there, some concept of beauty that has certain criteria, certain rules or elements to it. Certain things can be more or less beautiful, closer to or farther away from this thing called beauty that has some sort of objective characteristics. But it's also personal in terms of the search to discover that. So if it's this big, huge, nebulous thing, and at any given time, we're only bumping into one small part of it, accessing one small part of it. It's like that parable of all the blind guys feeling an elephant, you know, like, oh, I feel this trunk. This is a hose. You know, I feel this leg. The, oh, I've, this is a tree trunk. And the elephant objectively exists. And each of them in their personal experience, they're actually touching part of that objective reality. And they're actually defining correctly what they're feeling. But none of them are capable of comprehending the whole in its full totality. And that's sort of the purpose of life is to continue to work your way around that elephant and feel it and try to piece together in your mind. Every time you grab another little element, this is part of what beauty is. You start to piece it together. And so it's your vision is clouded. You never fully see what is completely, this is beauty, this isn't. You might look at something and think that it's objectively not beautiful only because your current level of understanding of beauty in its totality is too limited. Um, but maybe as you continue to explore, some of those things will change. So it is possible. I don't know. I don't know if this is true, but it's possible. And I like entertaining this possibility that beauty. And again, I think morality is much the same does have, it is an objective thing, but our ability to understand it and apply it directly to our lives is limited to that aspect of it that we are currently aware of or able to comprehend. And that may be a different aspect than somebody else is currently aware of and able to comprehend. Now it is possible to do things that are not beautiful or not moral, certainly, but it's also possible that two things can be beautiful or moral and two different people can be rightly seeing them different from each other while they both are part of the same objective, non-contradictory uh, you know, sort of morality or beauty. Does that, does that follow? Oh yeah. You're, you're making sense to me. Now you're making me wonder if there's a sort of, um, 
analogy between ugliness and boredom. You know how we've talked before about boredom. When, when people say, I am bored, they're making more of a statement about themselves and the way they're perceiving reality in that moment than they are about the actual circumstances. Because a different person in those same circumstances can be highly entertained because they see things that the other person doesn't see or they're aware of ways in which they could use their environment that the other person uh, you know, is ignorant of. And so they say this is fun while the other person says this is boring. Could, could something similar be going on? Perhaps not in every case, but in many cases where we look at something and we say that's ugly or we look at another person's perception of beauty and we don't see it. And so we dismiss that as subjective. Could it be that in many cases, ugly is a placeholder term for instances of beauty that we do not observe, that mm. we do not see. We mm. haven't developed the, the faculties within ourselves to resonate with them or recognize them. Yeah. And it's possible that, you know, when, when someone else says, oh, this is beautiful, it's entirely possible that they are lying and it's not beautiful and they're incorrect. But it might also be possible that they, based on their current level of understanding of beauty, that is beautiful, that has elements of beauty in it that they have recognized and identified. And only they would know. And maybe they won't even know because it takes self-examination. You can't know from the outside. Again, this is where I, I'm making the parallel to morality. Like I think it is entirely possible for someone to have a drink of beer and be doing nothing immoral. And it's also possible for someone to have a drink of beer and be doing something immoral be based on where their current level of understanding of morality is, what they know, if they have made some sort of commitment to themselves or someone else that they will not touch alcohol for whatever reason, now they're violating, you know, some, they're violating their own understanding of morality. But I couldn't know that from the outside by just watching somebody drink a beer. So it, that's the sense in which it's personal, but it, but that being personal is not the same of saying it's subjective of saying everything is just whatever, whatever you want it to be, it could it could be both objective and personal at the same time. Which, I, by the way, I think justice is the opposite of that. I think justice is subjective and public. Explain. Well, I think justice is a is an emergent convention, much like language, that uh, the, in terms of institutions and norms of justice and the concept of justice, it, it has to do with it, it's subjective because. It can ebb and flow and change. Um, you know, breaking a window may or may not be unjust. It depends on the norms and circumstances that have emerged. Um, if you know, if, if you uh, whatever. I mean, well, let's let me use a better example. Here's one that I've used a lot. You could do something that is immoral but not unjust. Like I could try to um, break your window by throwing a rock at your car. Now. That's probably immoral and I probably know that in my heart if I'm trying to like damage you or I try to shoot you and I miss, I've committed no injustice. If nobody saw it and nothing was hit and nothing was damaged, there's no injustice done because justice is about the public tension between humans and humans. Um, but I might have done something immoral. If I, you know, uh, on the other hand, steal your car and I damage it, but I'm doing it to save somebody's life. I've done something moral, but I've still committed an injustice to you. So the norms of justice, which are 
public and subjective, I might go to court and, and everyone might decide I, even though what I did was heroic, I still have to pay you for the damage to your car because you were, you were, you know, your property was damaged or they may decide and you may decide. No, I mean, yeah, that sucks. But like, we would rather have a society where people are incentivized to do heroic things. It's okay. So it's not, it's not an objective. So both of those could be just outcomes based on the institutional setting that arises. Justice exists to serve the purpose of creating harmony. And so it's got some flexibility. This is the common law is a perfect example of this. Um, and it's public. So everyone can see it. It can be consistent. It can be known with a relative degree of certainty, even though it has a little bit of flexibility to change is why you have things like case law. And I think in that way, it's the opposite side of the coin from morality. I, I get it. A lot of people use those terms, you know, like synonymously to say that something is, uh, is just is to say that it's morally right. But what you're saying that justice is about the way in which the degree to which people are satisfied with, with with how an unethical matter has been handled. Yeah, what it what is a, a system of justice that functions well is one that doesn't surprise anybody. Rarely, no one's like, "What? How could that be fair? That just seems wrong." Where it's like, "No, you you knew the the rules. This is the way we deal with these problems." Everybody knows ahead of time. It's pretty consistent. There is a little bit of fudge room because there's always those edge cases and we have a process. It's more about the process than the outcome. It's more about the process itself being free, open and transparent and fair. And the specific outcomes that result from that process, we all kind of live with because they're pretty good. They're the best we can get. Um, and I think that distinction between justice and morality is crucial. Because I think some of the most dangerous, evil, heinous things done in the history of the world have been allowed to occur or have been carried out because those terms slowly become conflated. Because government bodies, uh, organizations that, you know, maybe monopolize the institutions of justice um, will say that it's the same as morality. And so they'll say, okay, now we own this institution of justice. And now we are saying that the just thing is to throw everyone in jail who smokes weed. Therefore, that's also the moral thing. Because if you violate justice, you also violate morality. Um, therefore, the right thing to do is to throw a bunch of innocent people in jail, right? It's a, it's a very subtle, because institutions of justice, if they're, if they're free and open and voluntary, um, are wonderful, but if they become monopolized and co-opted, even if they work at sort of maintaining an order in society of some kind, I mean, you can, you can have order in a prison where the, you know, that's the justice system of a prison is a system of justice, but it doesn't mean it's moral. It may, it may not be, it may or may not be good at maintaining, um, you know, sort of order, but that's a separate question from the morality. And I think conflating those two things is really, really dangerous. Yeah. You know, you see this happen a lot in cases where, there is some ambiguity as to, hey, you know, why why was this person harassed or put in this situation? And the moment you find out that this person at some point in their life might have touched marijuana, immediately the, the sympathy is gone, right? It's like, oh, this person deserved every everything yeah. they got yeah. because of conflations like that. And think yeah. about how crazy that is if it was like, you know, um, oh, well, you know, one time one time TK broke somebody's window with a baseball when he was a kid, uh, you know, or uh, whatever. Therefore, he has violated justice and he is now a criminal. Therefore, that he is an immoral person and he's bad and we don't really care what happens to him from here on out. I mean, that's really, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, hey, so 
I want to, I want to make sure we get to one thing. Cause I just remembered this is super mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. I don't think you have ever told besides to a few small groups, uh, that the story of how Praxis was endorsed by Shubna. <laughs> so, speak, speaking of me getting killed and no one sympathizing. <laughs> so, so if you don't, for those of you who don't know, Suge Knight is this like legendary rap, you know, hip hop producer, um, kind of, I don't know, a guy in the industry who was involved in starting death row records back on West coast rap back in the early nineties, I think it would have been, um, and they had a lot of famous rappers on the label, Tupac and, you know, Dr. Dre, et cetera. Anyway, if you've seen the movie straight out of Compton, he's the big dude that like pistol whips a guy for parking in his parking spot. And uh, he's he threatens people and beats people up. And there's all kinds of theories and conspiracies and uh, some actual convictions, I think, of some of those things. But he's like he's like kind of kind of a legend in hip hop. Um he gave his full uh, hearted endorsement of Praxis. TK, you want to tell the story? <laughs> I can't believe you're making me tell this story. So this is one of my secrets. I'm, I'm giving up <laughs> one of my secrets. <laughs> I've held this story close to the best. I'm, I'm actually kind of scared that I'm revealing this. But um, so I used to work in Century City. And uh, th- there is a uh, anybody who knows that area knows there's a 76 gas station on the corner of Santa Monica Boulevard and Beverly Glen. And I was driving home from work one evening and I pulled into the gas station and I I see, you know, Suge Knight, by the way, was known for being in this uh, area. This wasn't the first time that I had seen him. I've got several friends in L.A. who actually um, have seen him around that area before, you know, just like maybe dining out or at a gas station or something like that. So I had I had actually seen him on a couple of occasions, but this was a very special one because I pull into the gas station and I get out um, and, and I see that that Shug is leaning against his car and he's got a guy on each side and it's 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 pretty dark out and he's just standing there. And I'm like, dude, it's Shug Knight. And I'm just kind of like tripping in my head like, man, this is Shug Knight. So I pay for my gas and, I, and the whole time I'm trying to pump myself up to just go to Suge Knight and say something. I'm like, I got to say something to Suge. I have to say something. And so I was like, let's just do this. So I walked up to him and as I'm approaching him, him and those three guys, I mean, him and those two guys, a total of three of them, they didn't flinch. They didn't move. They, they had me locked the whole time. They, they had their eyes on me the whole time. And um, I walked up to him and I said, hey, man, I was like, um, you got any advice for a young brother that's just trying to come up? And he was like, what you trying to do? And so I told him about what we're doing. And he listens and he goes, yeah, man. He was like, see, the thing about something like that is ain't nobody ever seen no shit like that before. He said, uh, <laughs> he said, we're going to put so, that quote on the Praxis website. Yeah. So, so he goes, so he goes, so man, you just got to focus on what you're trying to do. You know, keep God first. And don't let these ninjas get to your head. And so, I, <laughs> so I, I remember, I remember Isaac and I spent about an hour trying to figure out what he meant by "don't let these ninjas get to your head." Because, because it's he so had, deep, I just need to somehow unpack it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, because he actually did use ninjas. So anyway, so anyway, um, he said that to me, and I was like, "Thanks, man. I appreciate it." 
And so I, I was just so, you know, in this headspace of, oh, my God, I just spoke to Suge Knight. And this dude just heard, heard my idea and said, ain't nobody ever seen no shit like this before. <laughs> and so I got in the car. I was like, man, this is so crazy. I got in the car and I drive off. And then I realized after driving for like a few minutes that I never pumped the gas. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I gotta go back. I gotta go back. I gotta get my gas. And so I drive back to the gas station and I pull up in the same area. And you know, this is during a time where there were rumors, you know, like somebody's out to get Suge Knight. It may or may not stuff. have backed over someone with his car intentionally. <clears throat> right, man. This was a time <laughs> where you don't want to mess with Suge, you don't want to cross this brother the wrong way. And so <laughs> I pulled up, man, and I get out of the car and they're just looking at me like, what is this dude doing back here? And, and I just sort of, you know, the scene in Dumb and Dumber where uh, <laughs> Jim Carrey walks up to the 7-Eleven and you see the two brothers standing outside um, with their Slurpees, whatever. And, uh, and, and in the most awkward conversation ever, Jim Carrey goes, hey, guys, yeah, big gulps. And the guys just don't even acknowledge him at all. I just looked at those guys and was like, yep, forgot to pump my gas. <laughs> and they didn't say anything. They just stared at me stone cold. I was like, pump the gas, TK, and just get out of here. Pump the gas and just get out of here. Oh, so I pumped man. my gas and I got out of there, man. But, that, that but is, it was a real conversation. It is the best story. You know, I, I actually have heard about that Dumb and Dumber scene because it's one of my favorite scenes. Now, I don't know if this is true, but someone said, uh, I heard somewhere that those two guys, they, they were just extras. And the scene was just him walking out of the gas station and Jim, it wasn't in the script and Jim Carrey just randomly stopped and turned to the extras and goes big gulps. All right. <laughs> and that was like a, an actual awkward moment that really occurred. <laughs> that's awesome, man. I think that's my favorite scene from the movie. <laughs> yeah, it totally felt like that, man. But Ripley's believe it or not, man, I had an interaction with Shug. No, that's not, that's not the story. The story is, Praxis is Suge Knight endorsed. <laughs> Ain't nobody never seen. <laughs> oh man. So recommendation for this week? Recommendation for the week, man. Um, so I'm going to go with uh, my book of the week from last week, uh, Carl Minger's The Origins of Money. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's a very short essay in book form and it's a really great breakdown of how what we call money is something that arose out of spontaneous order, that it did not and cannot arise from central planning, that governments did not in introduce this to us. Uh, and, and even beyond that, it kind of gives you a really solid understanding of historically why the need for money arose and why certain forms of, of, of commodities are more useful for money than others. So anyone that's interested in economics or just understanding the philosophy of money or monetary theory more, this is a, a very interesting book. My third uh, youngest child, um, if it was a boy, I wanted to name uh, name him Menger. My wife wasn't too sold on that, but uh, but it was a girl. <laughs> so we actually, it was at an IHS seminar, seminar uh, when I used to work there, and we got one of those giant sticky notes out that IHS likes to use for their breakout sessions. And I got a bunch of students around. I said, all right, we need to brainstorm some names here because it's a girl. And I was really set on something like Menger. And uh, we actually came up with Vienna Rose. Uh, so Vienna, a tip of the hat to the Austrian School of Economics. And Rose, uh, it depends on who you are. Rose Wilder Lane is, is one of my favorites. But uh, 
also a little nod to the Chicago school with Rose Friedman. So, um, Oh, when you said to the Chicago, I thought you were going to say, also a little nod to the Chicago Bulls. I was, no, Rose no, now. do not bring Derrick Rose into this. We're talking about greatness right now, right? The Chicago, you said the Chicago school. I was like, uh-oh, Derrick Rose. Dude, doesn't that sound like, wouldn't that be super cool if, like, there was a new starting lineup for the Bulls and their nickname was the Chicago school? I think that would be really awesome. Oh, man, <laughs> that'd be perfect. So um, I'm going to give two recommendations. I'm going to cheat. Uh, one is since we were talking about justice and this concept of justice as like an emergent phenomenon or even the concept of rights, not as some objectively existing thing, the way that maybe morality does, or some might disagree with that, but, but as an, as an emergent social order, the same way that language and money are, um, the best essay on this is John Hasness. Uh, it's toward an empirical theory of natural rights really, really good toward an empirical theory of natural natural rights by John Hasness. And then the second recommendation, since you mentioned Menger and the emergence of money, this is the coolest thing ever. Fisheconomics.org. Fish as in the things that swim in the water. Fisheconomics.org. It's a series of like 10 little five minute videos. And it's based off of uh, Peter Schiff's book, um, How, How an Economy Grows and why it collapses or something like that, which is just a really great introduction to uh, monetary theory. But this is a really well done thing. Our good friend, uh, Anthony Davies, who's who's been um, very helpful in praxis all, all the way through, great economist. Uh, he does some, some video, there's the main videos which are animated, and then he does little videos where he like talks about the concepts behind them as well. Really cool stuff, a lot of fun, fisheconomics.org. Uh, is that it? That's it, brother. Okay, I guess we just stop. We we maybe we need like some kind of ending with a bang, you know? Because our some endings kind of a, just we don't know what to do. We either need some kind of beehive sound effect, or we <laughs> we, we, we need to talk with uh, Jake uh, Jake Dennison and have him give us a uh, some kind of killer guitar outro. Well, we do have a killer guitar outro, the music that starts up, thanks to Tim Levan Miller. But uh, I feel like you and I. We just sort of end it. In fact, sometimes it's so awkward that like we end it. And then a few minutes later, one of us like calls the other and says like, hey, um, just wanted to, you know, say that was that was good. Because <laughs> like, it just feels strange. All right. Well, we're going to let so, it so, feel strange. So, so maybe we should be like, hey, you know what time it is? And then you say what? And I go, I think it's time for a holy. And then you say moment. No, we both and then say we holy just... moment at the same time. Like <laughs> yeah. those cheesy shows. TK, do you, do you know what time it is? What time is it, Isaac? It's time for a holy moment. You're supposed moment. to say it with me. <laughs> I said it. I said it. I get it. This is, this is just getting weirder by the minute. All right, man. We'll talk to you next week. Peace.